Welcome to Equals. This is Naf. Hi everyone, welcome to Equals. This is Nabil Naf. It is such a pleasure to be your co-host on Equals for the first time. I'm very happy to see one of the coolest people I know co-host Equals. And I mean you, of course, although Max is very cool too. He is. And it's been a pleasure so far, um, even in these challenging times for our world. I, I really look forward, actually, to these moments to get behind the mic. As do I, Neff, as do I. I was just reflecting where we left off in that episode before last with Daniela Gabor. And folks, if you haven't heard that, do give it a listen. It was a fantastic interview. Uh, there at the end, we were quoting Gramsci, and I quote, The crisis consists precisely in the fact that the old is dying, the new cannot be born. And in this interregnum, a great variety of morbid symptoms appear, end quote. And so the sense of crisis in which horror shows up, and we're seeing horror play out right now, still in Gaza, it's also indicative of the moment that we're living through, right? And we're also seeing pushback to that, courageous pushback. Look at South Africa at the ICJ, and I can't help but think it does feel like an interregnum. Absolutely. And that demand for change is real too. And this is why I'm moved by this episode, uh, especially today with Dr. Ndongo. Because it's rooted in the change um, demanded by African leaders of the past, particularly, you know, the former president of Burkina Faso, Thomas Sankara, and how that informs a whole new approach to economics and sovereignty today. Truly, Naf, true liberty, right? And yes, listeners, so we're very excited to welcome Dr. Ndongo Samba Sila. He's a Senegalese development economist who heads policy and research at Ideas, which is a global South-centered network that brings progressive economists together. And his work is, and I say this wholeheartedly, just utterly pioneering. He's previously worked at the Rosa Luxemburg Foundation. He's advised the Senegalese government. He's also the co-author of Africa's Last Colonial Currency, the CFA Frank story, and also author of The Fair Trade Scandal and more. Nabil, I'm really looking forward to our conversation with Ndongo um, because there are serious questions we need to be digging into around debt, poverty, inequality. You know, why are developing countries in a debt trap, in a cycle of poverty? And for me, you know, I feel this closely uh, for Ethiopia with its negotiation with IMF. So let's go to the interview. Let's get to it. Thank you, Naf. Ndongo, our brother, welcome to Equals. It's such a pleasure to have you on. I've found myself deep in and, and deeply moved by your pioneering writings and your scholarship. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much, Nabil, for your invitation. It's great to be here with you and Naf. I read your work, uh, To Live as African, and I really loved it. So you're advocating Sankara's vision, which says, we must accept to live as African. That is the only way to live free and dignified. What does this mean to you? And why did you go about writing this piece? I admire a lot Thomas Sankara. For the people who uh, do not know him, he uh, was a leader of uh, Burkina Faso. Burkina Faso means uh, land of the man and woman of integrity. He came to power in 1983 uh, uh, following a coup d'etat, a military putsch, uh, organized while he was uh, in jail. And in 1987, at the Organization of African Union, he had this powerful speech uh, where he told that, well, we must accept to live as African because it's the only way to live free and dignified. Uh, generally, most people would talk about this speech, about the speech on debt, because during this speech, you have many, many insights. But he stressed on the fact that we need not repay the debt because the debt 
came from colonialism. And if we pay the debt, we are going to die. And uh, if we do not pay it, uh, our creditors will not die. So let's repudiate the debt. Unfortunately, he would be killed three months later. But the end of this speech, we must leave uh, as African for me, is a really powerful message because uh, for me, it's um, a message of liberation. Uh, it delineates an agenda for liberation for the African continent. And I mean, I would say for the for, for humans simply, because uh, being African is not, uh, you know, something uh, xenophobic or something that evokes autarky. I mean, uh, Sanka, when he uh, spoke, uh, he spoke in the best tradition of Pan-Africanism. That means that liberating the weak and being in solidarity with all the oppressed people, nations, etc. Thanks so much, Ndongo. In your research, you're also talking about how you know, you make the case that the Western standard of living is neither sustainable nor feasible, and that economic catch-up for the global South is impossible. What What do you mean? Well, uh, you have this uh, well-held view that uh, underdevelopment is just the phase before development. That means that there are some countries that are labeled rich and others that are labeled poor. Well, the countries that are labeled poor are underdeveloped. They have to take a number of policies and they will modernize like the rich countries. Uh, and there have been people saying that, well, uh, this view is not correct at all because underdevelopment is not a phase uh, before development. In fact, underdevelopment and development are two sides of the same coins. Uh, the conditions that create underdevelopment uh, allow development and the, create, the conditions that create development in the center, that means the rich countries, they also uh, explain underdevelopment. Uh, because the lifestyles of northern countries, I mean the rich countries, the West, uh, let's say the U Europe, uh, the UK, the United States, Japan, Australia, all these countries, the life standards of their populations have been historically based on the appropriation of the resources from the rest of the world uh, through colonialism, uh, imperialism, and before that, slave trade, etc. And that means that if we were to uh, I mean, all the countries in the in the world, if you were to emulate these patterns of consumption and production, the ecological limits would be reached very soon. So that means that maintaining the standards of living in the global north, uh, to some extent, rely on, you know, maintaining the global south in, in poverty, in a sense that they could not uh, exploit for their own benefit their own resources. And um, if this pattern is not sustainable, that means that, uh, there are other ways we have to create prosperity for the people. And I think that's where a practical and humanist like Thomas Sankar is important. Thomas Sankar was not an economist, but he was uh, an intelligent person. And he said, we have to live as African. Live as African means that we have resources here. We have the creativity. So let's start by that. And he had a wonderful formula saying that uh, in our context, it's either a champagne for a few individuals or, you know, uh, having access to safe drinking water for everyone. It's a metaphor, but that means that as long as you rely on the resources you have next to you, uh, as long as you rely on your own creativity and the spirit of solidarity with, you know, the rest of the world, you could have sustainable prosperity for everyone. And that's the message of living as, as African. Just to hear that level of discourse of that time of Thomas Sankara is just it's just so powerful comparative to pretty much anything that we hear today isn't it Ndongo? 
Yeah, exactly. Because uh, generally, uh, people would say that, well, uh, the problem is either with, you know, neoliberalism, things like that, uh, bad policies, etc. But the issue is deeper than that. Uh, this model, in fact, it's a counter model, the Western way of life. It's a counter model in the sense that, well, you can't emulate it and trying to emulate it will destroy further the world and create inequalities in the rest of the world. So you have to do something else. And this something else is starting with, you know, uh, the resources you have around you. And that is possible when you use your own creativity. And this is a message that is to some extent, you know, uh, being told now by the, the intergovernmental panel on, on climate change. But uh, Sankara uh, told it really well because he has a lot of humor. He said that, well, it's not a fashion week here, but I could tell you that I have been closed by uh, people from Burkina Faso and nothing came from Europe. Everything uh, that was made to clothe me came from my country. That means that is possible. Um, so Ndongo, you touched on uh, some really important ideas uh, about colonialism, about imperialism, um, and also appropriation of resources from uh, global south to global north. And in a lot of your work, you actually explore this idea of unequal exchange. Can you walk us through what that means? Yes, yeah, thank you for, for, for this question. Unequal exchange is a really important concept coming from the global south. But the concept itself has been enriched by ecological economics. And uh, that's why you have this uh, idea of uh, ecologically unequal exchange or unequal ecological exchange. It's unequal exchange, but you know, with this the idea of having to take, uh, to take into account uh, ecological limits. Literature uh, shows that uh, for centuries, we have a bio biophysical transfers from the global south to the global north. When we say biophysical transfers, that means, for example, uh, transfer of, uh, I mean, goods, real goods, uh, transfer of uh, labor power, uh, of uh, land uses, etc., from the global south to the global north in net terms. Uh, but you have also associated with these biophysical transfers, net transfers of, you know, of, of money, let's say net financial transfers. So to understand this situation, you have to think of a worker who sells uh, her labor and creativity to her boss, but at the same time, uh, her financial transfers to her boss are higher than what she receives as wage and compensation. You have to think it like that. And you could clearly see that this situation is possible only if the worker is in a situation of uh, permanent debt bondage and exploitation. But when we come to nations, uh, the coexistence of uh, biophysical transfers, transfer of goods, of labor, and net financial transfers, this is possible in a framework where the countries of the global south are permanently indebted in foreign currencies. And they are in a situation where they have to sell off their national assets. And these type of policies that maintain an ecological exchange uh, have been, you know, uh, the province of uh, the IMF, International Monetary Fund, the World Bank, and the World Trade Organization. So these are global uh, governance institutions, but the policies they advocate, they maintain these patterns of unequal ecological exchange. But you have also other manifestations of uh, unequal ecological exchange. For example, you have the phenomenon of, you know, um, ecological burden shifting uh, by the global north to the global south, 
when we say ecological burden shifting, that means, for example, the global north will relocate their most polluting and most ecologically damaging industries to the south, for example. Uh, another aspect is, for example, uh, the fact that the global north, they freely benefit from the carbon sinks preserved by the global south. Now, Ndongo, one of the ways that unequal exchange is locked in, right, is through so many global south countries basically not having monetary sovereignty, right, if we can call it that, you know. You've long been vocal about this issue, you know, particularly on, it, and I can pick on this, like the CFA franc, right, as, and I, you know, this book, Africa's Last Colonial Currency. Just for the benefit of our listeners, when did France end the use of its currency over these West African nations? Well, this is very provocative in the sense that we still have this colonial currency. It never ended. So many people are shocked by that, by the way, Ndongo. Even me, when I first learned about this a few years ago, it just blows the mind. I, I, I can imagine that myself. I'm also shocked when I see the, how shocked people are when I tell that story. So we have 200 million Africans in 14 countries across West and Central Africa that still use this colonial currency. Uh, when I talk about colonial currency, I do not try to, to denigrate. It's really a colonial currency in the sense that the colonial principles that were at the basis of the creation of this currency after the Second World War, these principles are still there unaltered. What happened was that the French said to the African leaders at that time, and most of them were trained in France. Some of them were even, you know, member of parliaments or member of the French government at that time. And France made a pact with them saying that, well, we will give you independence because we know that independence has become irreversible. Uh, but you'll have independence without the attributes of sovereignty, of independence. So you won't decide on monetary matters. You won't decide when it comes to your educational system. You won't decide when it comes to your you know, strategic resources. You won't decide when it comes to your external trade, etc. And the leaders at that time, they all agreed to sign these agreements. They were called cooperation agreements. But cooperation meant at that time colonialism through other means. And that's why most of them, they you know, agreed to use the CFA franc. And when you have the CFA franc with you, that means that your currency system is managed from Paris by the French Treasury. Because one of the pillars of the CFA franc is that, well, you have two central banks, you know, one in West Africa, the other in Central Africa. They, they have two different currencies named CFA franc with different denominations, but they obey the same principles. But one of the principles is that the French Treasury decide the external value of the CFA franc in the sense that you could not alter its value without having the approval of the French Treasury. And whenever the countries accumulate, uh, I mean, US dollars, I mean, euros, etc., they have to deposit half of them at the French Treasury. That's how it works. And that is how it is still working. But Ndongo, this, this is such a deep issue that we can cover in, in, in so much time it, it itself. I was really intrigued by one of the ways that you speak about kind of breaking free from this kind of monetary sovereignty. And, and you talk about, about modern monetary theory, MMT. Now, um, to recap, and we actually did a past equals episode on this. Um, you know, this is basically, you know, the, the idea that, you know, countries can issue their own currencies, um, never running out of money the way that people or businesses can, and they can run larger budget deficits to pay really for what matters. Um, 
Ndongo, you spoke about in this paper, you spoke about the paradigmatic revolution that's introduced by MMT and how this opens up a developmental space. Could you walk us through what's MMT's role here in this kind of monetary liberation? How would it work for an Ethiopia or or a Zambia or a, or a Senegal? MMT is a lens. That means that MMT is a scientific paradigm that describes how the monetary system works. MMT is not an ideology that is a description of the operational realities. And since the 1970s, there has been something important that happened. Currencies are no longer pegged to the gold or any other currency. As long as your currency is not pegged to the gold or you know any other currency, the currency in itself, it's a monopoly of the government. So that means that the government is not constrained in issuing its currency. Constraints the government has are linked to real resources. And in the MMT literature, when we talk about real resources, it's, you know, uh, labor, land, you know, the equipment, the technologies, etc. Those are the real resources. So that means that as long as Ethiopia has what is needed to build schools, uh, to build dams, etc., Ethiopia does not need any dollar from abroad to build that. And in the case of African countries, our constraints are not financial. Our constraints are linked to the resources. There are things we want to achieve. But generally what we do, we do not mobilize our own resources. We don't live as Africans. We want to mobilize others' resources. And when you have a development based on others' resources, if you are not an imperial country, you will go into debt and you will see all the damage done by being into debt in foreign currency because debt in foreign currency is a, is a problem. But debt in domestic currency is not a problem because it is the net wealth created by the state for the non-government sector. So what are the constraints for Zambia or Ethiopia? Uh, why are they not implementing this? I will give you an example because I know a bit well the Zambian case because Zambia is currently in debt distress. And most of the economists, they say that, well, Zambia is in debt distress because you know Zambia issued debts in foreign currency. And part of the debt is uh, held by companies like BlackRock. BlackRock is one of the biggest asset management companies in the world. Uh, as an MMT economist, what you would think of is, why should Zambia be into debt crisis? Why should Zambia ever issue debt in foreign currency? Because Zambia is a very rich country. When I say very rich country, it has you know, a lot of copper. And Zambia could use its copper to bring some you know, US dollar for its needed imports. But Zambia suffered also from a lot of resource theft. That means um, lost, most of the copper export was stolen from the country because the country did not have the means to monitor that. So with declining you know, uh, international reserves, Zambia was obliged to issue debt in foreign currency. So for someone like me, I would say that if Zambia had a better control of its export sector, Zambia would have never needed to issue debt in the first place. Take the case of Libya under Gaddafi. Libya did not have any significant debt in foreign currency because Libya had you know, vast assets, foreign assets in US dollar because it's an oil exporting country, very rich. The same thing should have happened for Zambia. Ndongo, as a solution, um, I love how you've been advocating towards Bandung Woods, 
this idea that we can build a democratic, global economic and monetary order. Can you talk more about this and what reform you think is needed, especially reform required to um, the global financial architecture? Because a lot of the things that you're mentioning is also related with um, the the global financial architecture. Yeah, the idea of banding woods and green banding woods came through a conversation with uh, Daniela Gabor, Goffer, and friend. And the idea is that uh, the I mean the modern multilateral economic and financial system uh, was born in 1944 at the Bretton Woods Conference. The limits of this conference is that it was not democratic to the extent that. Uh, countries from Africa and Asia were not represented because they were still under colonial status. You know, 10 years after that, in 1955, you had Bandung Conference, and it was an Afro-Asian conference. And the leaders at that time said, well, we have to challenge the uh, colonial system, the imperial system, apartheid, etc. We have to change the world economic order because it doesn't work for us. That's how we could have a fair war which would be beneficial to all the peoples of the planet. Uh, because when we have uh, green bandung woods, uh, first we have to think of democratic reforms, so-called governance reforms. Because the institutions we have, like the IMF and World Bank, uh, they were created with the principle of one dollar, one vote. We could also think of more systemic reforms in the spirit of green bandung woods. Uh, reforms uh, that would help bring an economic order uh, where Global South nation could enjoy prosperity in an environment of financial stability and limited indebtedness in foreign currency. Uh, we can think, for example, of you know moving away from trade liberalization, financial liberalization, and promote instead you know technological transfers that do not create dependency. Remove patents and intellectual property rights on key technological products, namely uh, the, the products we need for the green transition. Uh, we could establish you know, international payment systems that relieve the uh, global South nations from the need to accumulate hard currency because you know, most countries, they go into debt because sometimes they, they have to earn the currency to trade internationally. So we could have systems that, you know, relieve the thousand nations from the need to accumulate hard currency. Uh, we could also think of mechanisms to grant, uh, you know, to provide grants to global South countries to help them adjust to external economic shocks, but also to adapt and mitigate climate shocks. This has to be done with, you know, with grants, uh, not loans. These are the kind of things that are desirable and also affordable. But unfortunately, you know, you have always power politics. You know, to what extent is it important to reform these very, let's say, you know, quite colonial still institutions that we have at the global stage versus trying to build the counterbalance institutions that can offer a counterweight through greater global South-South cooperation, for example? Where do you stand on this? I think we have to uh, try both. And I would add a third layer. The third layer is the national domain. In fact, no reform of the international system will work if the basics, the national basics, you know, are not there. You know, in many global South countries, they have frameworks which do not allow progress for the society. For example, we talked about domestically resource projects. There is a development path with domestically resource projects. We are not using that. And as long as we do not use that, uh, well, we are not, you know, 
entitled to say that we want to change the world because there are many things we could do domestically that would help create prosperity we are not doing and dogo let me end end with this question for us because you know in a really positive way i think we i feel we're hearing more about bandung about the new international economic order about these post liberation leaders about that kind of cooperation of that age more than we have in years gone by and i get the sense you know there's 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 this kind of decisive belief that we can create a different system and different national and international systems that doesn't have such inequality between and within countries how do you feel about this are you are you feeling hopeful i would say yeah to some extent i always follow the gramscian dictum pessimism of the intellect optimism of the will that means we could have depressing diagnoses analyses but nonetheless we should always mobilize enthusiastically for progressive change that means yeah we are in a very you know um strange situation because there are elements of hope and there are elements of despair uh among the elements of hope we see that we are going towards a multipolar world this seems an irreversible trend because well we see that at one point you need you know geopolitical balance you know uh each country you know countries like china india extra you know and even african continent these are big you know big civilizations big entities and now we have a kind of rebalancing geo geopolitical rebalancing and this is a priori a uh, good news but the thing is uh challenging western imperialism in itself is not is a necessary point of departure but it's not enough because the point about bandung woods the point about you know having multipolarity is to make it work for the weaker nations and for the peoples everywhere but the thing is as i said there are elements of despair we could see that with you know uh the surge in militarism we could see that in you know the surge in ecological devastation you know sort out you know the globe so these are elements of despair but the two i mean it's it's a dialectical relationships and uh, we have to make sure that you know these elements of you know hope uh will help us deliver the type of change we are uh, aspiring to that, that that is possible but i think the national level is really important in the sense that the type of external constraint you have is determined by what has been you know um achieved domestically speaking for example if you have you know very democratic country when i say democratic i am not using that you know i mean as it is currently understood extra elections but when the people are mobilized when the people control more and more policies etc have more voice i mean this create different types you know of of external constraints and we have more global south you know mobilized rather you know popular mobilization of the of, of their people they aspire for change this could be a a game changer that means change could not happen without involving the people so ultimately we need a kind of a substantive democracy substantive equality and i using this concept coming from the late marxist philosopher ivan mesaros we need that substantive equality that will be the basis and also the goal thanks so much and dongo that was really incredible talking to you um we need more revolutionary voices like you especially you know for someone like me coming uh from africa from ethiopia um uh, your work means a lot to me and you know how you have articulated well the problems faced by a lot of countries in africa actually a lot of countries um from the global south and also how you have articulated the issues 
So yes, we need more revolutionary voices like you. Thank you so much. That was a remarkable note to end on, substantive equality. Thank you so much, Ndongo. Thank you very much, Naveen. Thank you. What an interview, Naf. I'm dying to ask you, you know, your deep reflections. But first, I have to ask you this very burning question on my mind, which is, how are you feeling about all that French imperialism after listening to that interview? Oh, I, I mean, I knew they were bad. But what we learned today is mind-blowing. I, I knew there were problems around the French CFA, but I'd learned so much from Ndongo. I didn't know, for instance, that the um, West African countries have to uh, save or put uh, half of their you know, foreign currency with the French treasury. I mean, this is unacceptable. It truly is. The not-so-invisible shackles of colonialism are still there, right? It's very clear. And I think many listeners would be surprised to have learned about that. And Ndongo has a book and deep literature about this very issue. But Naf, let me also ask now, you know, and if I may ask, as, as an African, as someone who thinks so deeply about your continent and its future, how are you feeling after this interview? Uh, hopeful, really hopeful. Um, I, I loved his message around live as African. Um, I loved that we talked about monetary sovereignty and self-sufficiency. I really found it liberating, you know. There's hope for countries in the global south, in Africa, to free themselves from the shackles of northern domination uh, by mobilizing resources locally. So especially countries with monetary sovereignty don't have financial constraints so that they can invest locally and build their economies and promote development as they see fit. So I would say really hopeful and liberating. And yes, even just to hear you there, Naf, one can't just but feel hopeful, right? And liberation seems to be the key word. And I think that challenge that we got on the importance, the scope of national action that came through very strongly, that there is in fact an amount of control, maybe we can call it the keys to liberty that does sit in the hands of global South countries and their people if we have a different economic framework of, of monetary sovereignty. I also appreciate the way Ndongo spoke about international cooperation, right? But done differently. This idea of a green Bandung woods picking up from where when newly liberated Global South countries came together in Indonesia and, and, and those decades after. And this idea that we don't just need a you know reformed Bretton Woods, but rethinking multilateralism that's purposed to tackle inequalities that's you know does things like transfer technology. And that's democratic, not just one dollar, one vote. That was incredible, Nabil. And I think that's what we need to continue investing, you know, learning more about and working towards. And Naf, let me ask one final question on, on reflection to you. And by the way, I think we could have gone on for hours with Ndongo, but let me ask, you know, from the perspective of climate justice for global South countries, what do you think this all means? You know, Ndongo was raising the issues that um, despite, you know, this positive story around monetary sovereignty, there are tangible constraints uh, that countries are faced with. Uh, especially around um, resources, land, um, labor, technology. And I'm more interested in the technological aspect because when we're talking about climate and right now we're talking more and more about the need for a green transition and we're talking about, you know, decarbonizing your whole economy. So um, this is also an area that we really need to dig deeper into. How are these countries, especially in the global south, going to be on a path to green transition? 
uh, with all the constraints that they're faced with. Um, and what you raised about, you know, the Bandung Woods would be, I think, an amazing thing that would help uh, countries in the global south. That's a great note to end it there. Thank you, everyone, for listening. As always, just to quickly add that Ndongo has a new book coming out, co-authored with others on revolutionary movements in Africa, an untold story. Folks, do leave us a review on Spotify or Apple, wherever you're listening. Please do share with your family and friends and do join us next time. Until next time. Until next time.